Why have we been repeatedly attacked and are now being held prisoner by a planet known for its hospitality? You mean mindless servitude? Bridge to all decks. Time to head back to the Shirley planet for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I am Steve Morris. And I'm kind of tired. I could use a little vacation, maybe a bit of R&R. What do you think? Uh, I think that is a great idea. Just be careful what you wish for and do not think of Finnegan, who is nowhere to be seen, thankfully, in this episode. We are covering the animated series episode Once Upon a Planet, which is a direct sequel to the first season original series classic Shore Leave, written by the legend Theodore Sturgeon. Once Upon a Planet is written by Chuck Menville and Len Jansen. It's their first foray into the animated series. Uh, one of those guys would go on to write another episode of the animated series. We'll get into that. But overall, Steve, what is your take on Once Upon a Planet? I like this so much more than I liked last time's episode. I was really not a fan of the last one. It made no sense to me. This one makes sense. It's it's much tighter. So I enjoyed it. I, I liked it too. I see. I, I don't think I liked it as much as you because I think for the first time, in the animated series, you know, now we're we're up to the ninth episode of the animated series. I feel like this one, while I like that it's a direct sequel to a classic episode of the original show, I don't think it's amb- it's as ambitious as some of the prior episodes of the animated series, like uh, Beyond the Farthest Star or One of Our Planets is Missing. Um, and I know I liked Magic's Omegas 2 more than you did, but I think you liked Once Upon a Planet more than I did. I, I enjoy it. I like that all the characters have are are spread equally. There's a lot for them to do. Even, even Arix and Mares have something to do in this episode. But we are so excited to be joined for our deep dive discussion of the animated episode Once Upon a Planet and of Star Trek in general by not just one, but two very, very special guests. Our first guest has been a character designer for Warner Brothers Animation for, I want to say, more than two decades working on shows like Superman, Batman, Apocalypse, Batman Under the Red Hood, Justice League, Crisis on Two Arts, Superman, Man of Tomorrow, and many, many more. And he is also the artist and designer of the Star Trek original series 50th anniversary poster, which pays tribute to all 80 episodes of the original series. You know this poster. If you're listening to Enterprise Incidents, you know this poster. Please welcome our special guest, Dusty Abel. Welcome, Dusty. Uh, Thank you, guys. That was the best introduction I will probably ever receive in my life. And I can't believe I got that before our other special guests. So that blows my mind. But uh, I think you should have come first. But there you go. Well, well, you were the one who reached out to us about being on Enterprise Incident. So, so for that, we thank you that we we what well, you're the first person who came to us. So, <laughs> of course, we're well, going to introduce you first. Well, I, I I will take it. I will take it. I will let you now uh, go on to uh, our 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 esteemed guest that I invited along uh, to be with me because I didn't want to I didn't want to come on by myself. I knew I needed star power, uh, and that's why I asked my my friend Alex, who you will introduce now. Well, oh, your friend Alex, when you when you suggested, when you asked, can he join us? I I was really like taken aback because I was like, well, of course the answer to that is yes. But our next guest 
Holy moly, is a legend. I have so much of his artwork in my collection, and it's not just his artwork on books and comics, but it is also his artwork for the Academy Awards and for feature films. Uh, he has written and uh, co-wrote and did the art for, for series like uh, Kingdom Come, World's Greatest Superheroes. Uh, he has done more artwork and stories from Marvel and DC Comics than I can keep track of, but it is his work on the amazing Spider-Man from about 10 years ago that really rocked my world. And speaking of Spider-Man, he did the narrative art for the first two Spider-Man movies from 2002 and 2004. He's also done artwork for the Avengers, Captain America, so much more. He did the poster for the 74th Academy Awards in 2002, and I'm a big, big, huge movie and Oscar fan, Alex, so I had to throw that in there. And you can catch all of his artwork at alexrossart.com. Alex Ross, welcome aboard Enterprise Incidents. Thank you. I'm mostly known for being Dusty's friend, though. <laughs> wow that that's the first line on your on your wikipedia page i thought it was I really crazy so. <laughs> um I, I too am about it's so funny dusty because i've seen your your poster and your artwork many many times before i knew your name and i'm a huge fan of yours and alex i had to say i was when i was trying to break into comics as a writer in the early 90s i can remember we had a little studio with two of my artist friends where we would work and i remember when kingdom come came out and we all just sat there and stared at it because <laughs> there'd never been anything like that that i had ever seen in comics it was oh yeah so i'm a huge fan of both of your works and really excited to have you guys on the show i remember being on the con floor at san diego when some of the pages from uh kingdom come were coming into the editor of the book and uh just the stories about the you know everybody opening the thing and going through it and seeing this stuff and just being like blown away so i mean i remember before it even came out when when there was just so much buzz going on with the people in the industry at the time I, I've said this before, but if there's one thing, well, two things I love as much as Star Trek, it's the Beatles and it's Spider-Man. And Alex, I saw your yellow submarine artwork uh, and, and you know, when I saw it, I had to get it. But uh, I think the first time that I was really completely blown away, uh, one of the first times I really like took notice of your artwork was uh, it was almost like a variant cover of Amazing Fantasy 15 this beautiful painting of Spider-Man carrying the burglar. And I just went, holy Toledo. That is, it was like absolutely awesome. That was my uh, entry point into your artwork. But gentlemen, the question I have for both of you before we we visit Once Upon a Planet, and and uh, Dusty, I want to start with you. I mean, you, you came to us. So clearly Star <laughs> Trek is something that runs very, very deep uh, inside in, in you. So what what was your entry point into Star Trek? What fired your phasers? <laughs> uh, well, I have to say also the re uh, how I found your podcast was uh, through my friend Mark Chiarella, who is a big fan, and he turned me on to your podcast. So I gotta gotta big uh, give a big shout out to Mark, and I'd love to plug something he's working on later that's entirely Star Star Trek related that I think fans would get a huge kick out of. But uh, I was talking to Alex, and I, I said it's the whole chicken and the egg. Uh, syndrome of not knowing which came first. And I, I, I'm pretty convinced it probably had to have been the original series, but the, it coincides so closely with the debut for me as a young kid of the animated series. I sometimes 
uh, have a, a, a hazy recollection of maybe which one it might have been, but I, I seem to think that I probably knew what I was looking for on Saturday morning. Uh, so I, I'm thinking uh, very early age, probably three or four years old, was probably my uh, first exposure to the animated to, to the live action series. And then, I mean, it just the, the animated series just fell in beautifully with 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 that, with all the it, the limitations in animation that everyone sometimes mentions with, you know, sil black silhouettes running across the screen and all this, you know, limited facial stuff and nobody ever turns around. But the beautiful uh, design elements, the ships and the creatures and the, 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 the costuming, the, the, bat the beautiful background paintings, re regardless of how much of it was pink or not, were just <laughs> gorgeous. You can't take any of the design elements away from a limited animation uh technique i think the production value of it was and don't even get me started on how good those caricatures are because to 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 distill down those actors faces into the bare bones filmation look which i think i've adopted a lot into my own personal art style and i think it's directly related to filmation's approach to that style whether it was in uh, star trek or tarzan or zorro or flash gordon or any of that but to, to distill DeForest Kelly, I mean, I was just watching the episode the other night and James Doohan, I mean, what they got out of such a minimal amount of line work is stunning to me. And it still is. It, it, you know, that's a really, really good point, Dusty, because, you know, when I was young, you know, when I was getting into Star Trek in the syndication generation, like so many of the Enterprisers who listen to Enterprise Incidents, um, and when I found the animated series, I was like, wow, that really does look like these guys and and Uhura. And and obviously having the voices of Shatner and Nimoy and DeForest Kelly and so on and so on just made me really think, wow, this feels like Star Trek. But I had not watched the animated show in a really, really long time. And where Steve and I are finding that, like, you know, for the most part, these animated episodes really do hold up. Uh, they are Star Trek for sure. And Alex. Our question for you is the same as our question for Dusty. How did you discover Star Trek? Uh, it'd be about the same. Dusty and I are the same age, so we would have uh, come to it around the same time, early 70s. I would think syndication of where it was, where I lived in Portland, Oregon, would have been getting it on in the background, at least with my older siblings watching. So as to whether or not I saw the live action versus the animated version first, I'm not certain. My clarity of what I learned first is kind of secondary to a lot of my comic book influences of what I knew I came into contact with first. But, um, you know, it's it's all part of that pea soup of pop culture that enters your life. And to me, the the world of Star Trek and that original series style is on the same level as your iconic superhero characters that you know, look, at if you're thinking about just related animation, if you're looking at you had the Super Friends, you had Star Trek, and then you had Spider-Man, and then subsequently all the other characters that would all get sort of presented to you in the same way back in that time period. You know, what's just occurring to me is, so, so one of the things we've been talking about since the beginning of the podcast was, what is it that gives Star Trek its lasting appeal? Like, what is it that has kept 
us lifelong fans. And it occurs to me talking to you, I'm very curious how you answer that question. Because for me, it's all about the characters, the story, the philosophical ideas. But both of you are talking so much because this is your artist about the visuals of it. And I'm curious how much did the design elements of Star Trek, the color choices of Star Trek, all of those things, is that part of the lasting appeal for both of you? Uh, it certainly is for me. I mean, the cohesiveness that they came up with uh, where, you know, uh, insignia, colors of the tunics, the, 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 the reality that they created of it all, the decks that there were, there were definite places. Uh, I mean, there was such a, a, a reality to it. I love that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm the kid that, you know, had the Franz Joseph blueprints on my floor and would like plan out my, my itinerary. If I was, you know, if I was on, on duty on the enterprise, like, Oh, I, here's my, here's where I'm, here's my cabin. Here's what it takes <laughs> to get to the elevator, to go to the cafeteria when I'm off duty. I mean, I would, I, I lost my mind over immersing myself into, into that world. Also the hopefulness of it. I love that. So some of the, the, the coarse language and kind of the, the iffy uh, morality of some of the more recent Star Treks leaves me, puts me off a little bit. Cause I, I like that hopeful optimistic thing. And then, I mean, for me, it's always going to go back to the classic one with the, 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 just the absolute perfection of, of the of, of of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and what they all bring to that uh, relationship with one another, that dynamic—that's the magic I think that makes the whole thing happen. Is is the three very unique uh, sensibilities of those characters, how different they all are, but together they're they're you know they're unstoppable. They've saved the universe how many times now? Many times, and you know, piggybacking on Steve's question there for Alex, uh, you know, Alex, we we had talked many times on Enterprise Incidents. About about what Dusty is referring to, the style, the look of the show, especially when it came to the cinematography of the man, the legend, uh, you know, Jerry Finnerman, um, and how the lighting of the series really, for the time that he was there for the first two and a half years, it really did define the look and make Star Trek look like no other show had looked before or even since. So how did, I would say... Jerry Finneman's cinematography on the original series inspire you as an artist? <laughs> well, I um, I don't know that I could say that inspired me as an artist per se. I can add to more what Dusty had said about the pop iconography of the selection of design in insofar as the costumes, the original ship design, and even with all the subsequent versions that come from the films and then later TV series, I will still go back to the original Trek as being the most inspirational and most pure, not because it seems simpler by contrast with the other. There's an aesthetic detail given to the 1960s material that seems unique in its way and maybe towards the point of the cinematography and the staging of the show that separates it from all the things that will come after it. Um, I've recently been watching a little bit, doing a deep dive into the Jerry Anderson world of you know, certainly UFO, I've seen all that series and I'm only starting to watch. I think I've watched my first two episodes of Space 1999 recently, and I'm impressed, but also seeing the severe difference between what I really enjoyed aesthetically on the original Star Trek series than that show, that there's a divergence that's not as effective, like when they do their fight scenes, the choreography and the staging and 
all of that isn't nearly as energetic, as lively, and as engaging as watching, say, Kirk and Spock fight it out or any of those uh, elements, the way they were presented on the old Star Trek. And I think a lot of that has to do with the music selected from the original series. But of all details that guide, I think, our love for this show, nothing beats, nothing trumps the largest thing of all, which is the casting. Those gentlemen, their chemistry, and the powerful magnetism of the three leads is what worked over the course of decades. Because, of course, it's an amazing thing to think about a show that started in the 60s that still carried through to the early 90s with that same group of actors reprising those roles again and again. So it isn't something that's just pure because of its engagement over those three seasons back then. It's, again, the two seasons from the cartoon, and then it's the multiple movies. So it's a lot of content. You know, we could even throw in the things that have happened with J.J. Abrams using Nimoy again, that, like, there's a whole lot of contribution that's happened from those people over a long part of history to acknowledge and find that that unique energy is something I'll always be drawn back to. And, and I've liked plenty of the other Star Treks, too, some more than others, but definitely have had a continued love affair with this show, with this property. But it all stems aesthetically from the stuff in the 60s, but mostly because of those performers. Could, couldn't agree more. It, the, the chemistry between those characters, the sense of family, the way they they interact and argue and go for i mean obviously you're preaching to the choir one thing <laughs> that just occurred to me by the way uh just back to the, some of the aesthetics uh is it just occurred to me you know you hear so much about what george lucas added in star wars or ridley scott and alien of having like the lived in world you know and what it just hit me was I was like oh the enterprise is the opposite of that in a lot of ways because the aesthetic of the enterprise is so theatrical you know, it's so the the way it was filmed, the way it was staged, it's so much more old school heroic than rather than lived in. And I think that's makes it there's an iconic element that you don't get. Obviously, I love the lived in worlds of later science fiction, but there's an iconic element with the original series that you don't get later on, you know. And the truth is, is that you don't necessarily want to have all of your entertainment of a genre be the same like the lived in world of aliens. I remember my older brother making the comment for years before I even got to see the film that it was all like, in his opinion, just scumbags in space. Right. And that's his view of that kind of lived in interpretation, which was suitable for that material. It was these guys who were like, you know, uh, they were miners out in space, really. You were meant to get that sense of like, nothing here was meant to be pretty or impressive in that cutting edge science fiction future sense but it was meant for that on star trek and sometimes you need some clean sci-fi you don't want every ship to look like it's got its guts on the outside which is what would come in the decade that followed star trek's original start you know i mean everything from you know jerry anderson's eagle design to even i guess a little bit starting with 2001 but all the aesthetic design that would dominate science fiction for much of the next 40 to 50 years was following that as opposed to the cleaner conceptualization of things from the Star Trek universe. You know, that's a really interesting point, Alex, because like when you think of 
Obviously, 2001 is a great example when you're looking at the SS Discovery, but also when you're looking at the Star Destroyers and the Millennium Falcon and Star Wars, you know, when you're looking at the Battlestar Galactica from the original show, which which I think is a, a terrific series and so on and so on. But you're you're right, Alex, uh, the Enterprise was this, this clean outside exterior. Well, actually, you know, one of the things I really like when you look back at the 60s versus, say, you know, just think to the uh, 1979 Star Trek film, you got rid of most of the color when they reprised this thing. Yeah. And that would be repri- that would be changed a bit in the 80s when they would do so many more films and then the later series they would re-engage with color. But when you go back to that first series, the bridge, let alone the costumes, you get that powerful sense of the color red, where like you weren't getting that in the rest of your science fiction post George Lucas. You know, you weren't going to get vibrant colors. I mean, and for some reason, maybe that is a link for me aesthetically, like why I'm drawn to the movie Flash Gordon and why I want some clean design occasionally. I don't want everything to look like it was built out of a junkyard shop. That's a great point. Alex, I want to ask, um, you know, when you were really getting into the original show, what were the episodes that you really, to this day, hail as your favorites? (laughs) <laughs> oh boy uh oh you know i'm gonna say right off the bat the pilot not the uh original thing with pike i mean the pilot that had gary uh lockwood gary, yeah gary lockwood yeah where no man yeah, has gone before like, that is extremely haunting it is something uniquely unnerving about that maybe even made more so by the fact that gary lockwood was also in 2001 you know, a few years later, and everything about it felt uh, m- very mortal in terms of the fact that you were losing two characters right off the bat, the man and the woman who would go off and become demigods on that planet. And of course, the roughness of how they were getting adjusted to the style in the show. I love everything about that episode in how it's not quite all refined yet, the relationship between Kirk and Spock Um and the fact that you had a lived-in feel that came with Gary and Shatner's relationship, that you really kind of could see them as old friends. And that would be a kind of haunting thing for us fans over the years, that you'd always want to re- re-engage with that uh, that particular established storyline. Like, well, wait, did the God figures, did they live on on that planet? You know, like there must be some of the written follow ups to that that I'm not familiar with that either happen in comic or other fan fiction that have gone gone there. I I will I will confirm that, Alex, because there was a a a series that came out maybe 10 years ago, a comic series called New Visions, where they took the photo novel format of taking actual stills from the original. Oh, the John Byrne thing. Yes. Oh, then I have it. I'm trying to remember. Did I read it and then forget about it? The but very I, first I bought issue, all those. The very first issue of that John Byrne photo story series. Oh, uh, well, now I'm, I'm humiliated. The fact that I don't even remember reading the first issue, which I certainly have. So, uh, but thank you for that clarification. I, I <laughs> yeah. forgot he did it. Now those, yeah. And for everybody listening to Enterprise Incidents, I've talked about the photo novels so many times. You know, Steve Steve Morris has started a drinking game uh, mm-hmm. for Trekkers. Uh, drink every time Mance mentions a photo novel. But but those John Byrne photo stories were ingenious and Dusty. I now turning to you what episodes 
do you cherish of the original series more than anything? Well, there's obviously the go-tos. There's the best dramatic. There's the best comedic. There's the guilty pleasure episode. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, my, my favorite dramatic one is City on the Edge of Forever. I think that's the best dramatic one with the, with the three characters all interacting character-wise just so perfectly. Yeah. Uh, Trouble with Tribbles is the funniest. I, I think it's the wittiest, funniest one. My, my guilty pleasure one is the uh, one with Surak and uh, Lincoln. Oh, the Savage oh, Curtain. Savage Curtain. I, I, I mean, <laughs> as a kid, how do you not love like the, it, it's like the Justice League going up against the Legion of Doom. I mean, that's totally. what that episode basically is. I know it's not a great episode, but as a kid, friggin' loved it. Oh, uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And I was just thinking, you were saying the photo novels. Absolutely. And I, I know he was riffing off the ones that I grew up reading in the 70s, which were, I mean, in, invaluable when you didn't have the VCR or the ability to on demand look at your favorite episodes. So those I have a whole set of those original ones from the 70s. And when John uh, was doing those, did they call it Fometti? Is that what they call that? Uh, but when you take photos and stuff. I, I've called I was, it Fometti because Marvel published a book called the Marvel Fometti book back in the mid 80s with photos of their staff. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Act yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I assume that was the term for the process. Is it not? I th I think it is. I I you know you'll you'll we'll probably get somebody on YouTube that will will either verify that or, or sure. not by the time this sees air. But uh, those ones from the seventies, huge. The burn ones were great. Although I also have to plug if anybody has not ever read any of John's uh, books that he wrote and drew, which are are spectacular. I would recommend, sure. especially for old time Trek fans, because that's, that's his wheelhouse. And that's what he was doing. The, the, the bones uh, frontier doctor one was, was great. Excellent. And the, yes. the Romulan one. And I mean, the one with all the other uh, looks uh, at other people on board the enterprise, they, they were all fantastic. So highly recommended if anybody uh, is interested in, in reading some classic era Star Trek drawn by a complete genius uh, artist. You know, and a well, huge, huge fan. I got I, to meet him. I, I mean, I'd met him years ago. I went to his house, but he was at the uh, Star Trek convention I went to. And he doesn't do conventions really very much. And I was at the one in 16 and 17, 16 for the 50th anniversary. And then 17, I did a, a Next Generation poster set for the Roddenberry Entertainment. And John was there with uh, promoting his Star Trek work. So that was an absolute blast to get to hook up with John again after like 20 years and for people to actually get to interact with him at something because he just is notoriously not convention guy anymore. So that was a that was a big thrill to to run into John at that. I it was well, unexpected but a lot of fun. He did put in his time. He went to his fair share of conventions over the years. So he's Back he's old. Back yeah, he's definitely owed a reprieve. If he's decided to retire, which he did a while ago, I, it's very understandable. What, when I was going to comic conventions in the uh, uh, early 80s and John Byrne was doing his run on Fantastic Four, uh, I saw him quite a few times uh, at those early conventions in the early 80s in Philadelphia where I grew up. But yeah, Dusty, I remember seeing John at that Vegas convention for for Star Trek where he was there for the photo stories. And I couldn't believe it was, I couldn't believe he was really there because, you know, Alex, I remember he kind of stepped away from that convention thing. But, you know, the amazing thing is, is that as we've been going through 
on Enterprise Incidents. And we and Steve and I are like, should we go into the animated series? Is it going to hold up? You know, we don't know. And and Steve, like, for the most part, wouldn't you say that, you know, it's actually pretty holding up pretty decent? I think the I think the batting average is pretty good. I, I agree with you. You and I grade on different curves. Your curve is more forgiving than mine. But uh, yeah, I think in general, it's like, no, this is Star Trek. It is doesn't reach the heights of the original series, but there's some definitely solid stories in here. Can so, I ask you guys a question about where this all fits into play? Like, do you know why Gene Roddenberry kind of disowned it from disowned. being canon? Oh, well, well, that's a great question, Alex. Like, because... For a long time, well, actually, up until up until he passed in 1991, he dismissed the animated series as canon. And it wasn't until I would say many, many years later, uh, with with some of the like like later shows like Enterprise and certainly Lower Decks, uh, the newer animated show, which is actually fantastic. Uh, it's such a love letter to Star Trek, especially the Next Generation era. Like it's almost like the fans themselves, the fans who wound up working in Star Trek, brought the animated series back into the into canon. You know, for a long while, it was like, well, the only episode that really counts as canon is is Yesteryear, uh, written by Dorothy Fontana. You know, where Spock goes back and saves his younger self. Uh, that's a brilliant episode for the. That's animated. the only one I really remembered for many, many years. Right, right. Well, that same same here. But then when we were doing some of these other episodes, like Once Upon a Planet Beyond the Farthest Star, like we just Steve and I were talking, like actually, like yeah, this 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 works. This is Star Trek. So so now looking back on the animated series, it's accepted uh, as canon. But we do. Do we know why Gene held that harsh opinion? That's the great question. I don't know why Gene felt that way. If anybody listening knows specifically why Gene felt like the animated series was not canon, please tell us. I, I, well, I, actually, I mean, I have a direct line. One of my <laughs> closest friends is best friends with Gene Roddenberry Jr., and I know that Rod, as he's nicknamed, yeah, sure, uh, is not necessarily dismissive of this as his father may have been he might have some idea although i'm not sure if it's written down anywhere for him to call up so i could ask the question and find out why if that's something he would share even if he knows i am I, um, I have no idea i have no inside information whatsoever but it doesn't surprise me you know like if you're going, you know, well, what do I want to be? What do I want people to focus on? What do I want to be remembered for? And the animated series is a mixed bag. I mean, the, there is a lot of cheap animation in there. There's, you know, repetitive music. There's two actors voicing 97 different characters. You know, there, there's there's a bunch of weaknesses there. And so I, I can see him going, oh, move along. Go watch the original series. Let's focus on that. You but know? Yeah. at the same time, at the same time, uh, this is this is where my grading the animated series on a curve comes into play. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you watch some of these episodes, they're only 24 minutes long, and that's including the opening and closing credits. So maybe 22 minutes of story, yet they're able to pack a lot of suspense and excitement. You know, you really had good character moments. 
especially the moments between Spock and McCoy that we remember from the original series. And then you have other moments where Kirk is quintessentially, you know, cat, the cat, the captain Kirk that we, we grew to idolize back in the original series where in the previous episode, we covered the magics of Magus two Kirk is defending a character who may or may not be the devil himself. You know, it's a little ambiguous, you know, but then you have an episode like once a, uh, 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 one of our planets is missing where Kirk has to make the kind of decision that he was forced to almost make in Operation Annihilate, you know, sacrificing uh, a whole colony of people for millions and millions of people. You know, these are the burdensome uh, issues that Kirk faced in the original show that he wound up also facing in the animated series. And Dusty, like when when you when you watch the animated show, you know, when you think about the animated series do do you think like hey you know that actually that show is really good i don't think people give it enough credit i've always held it up i mean i i bought the collection as soon as it was available to go along with my classic series i mean i just have such fond memories of it as a as a kid it it hit at right at a perfect time for a young kid who's immersed in monsters and science fiction and and that kind of uh, comic books uh, it, it it just fit perfectly and i just Again, going back to what I what I was saying earlier, I still think that the design aesthetic of it is is super strong. I think the designers that were working with uh, filmation were were excellent at what they at what they did, and I, I think it holds up on way higher it, from a design point of view than maybe a pure animation point of view. So uh, I'll always hold it in high regard for, for for that reason, and also because it did it was as close as we were going to get to Star Trek with the act. I mean, the fact you had the actual actors and not people pretending to be them. I mean, it might've taken more of a hit if that had been the case, but it's not. I mean, those were the, those were the, those were the people we, we recognized and we could maybe make up for some of the lack of animation uh, in our minds, having that great uh, back and forth with their actual voices. Maybe we could, maybe we could forgive some of the, the lesser animation because it still felt like it was it was the the, the characters we, we love so much. And by the way, I'd like to give a plug for what Dusty worked on with other animators designing uh, a return to some of this intellectually with uh, the the use of young Shatner from the 60s in a direct-to-video Batman 66 movie where Shatner did the voice acting as Harvey Dent Two-Face in a movie that where Dusty did the models for Shatner mm. that were basically approximating a look akin to filmation style for Kirk. And uh, this is our closest modern uh, connection to that heritage. That's super cool, by the way. Did I get all that right, Dusty? You you got all of it right. Yeah, I pitched that to Sam way before it happened. I'm like, Sam, you know what would be a fun a fun team up for Batman because he, he would have been available like during his hiatus on Star Trek. He could easily have been a villain. Why don't we run this up the flagpole and see if Shatner would like contemplate doing it? Cause he, he would have been one of the people that would have oh. been on season four. You know, it, it made more sense to me, but, and also when I designed that, I was thinking I, the way we went, it was full Harvey Dent, the big eye and the just, you know, the lip and the whole deal, the, the way you kind of see him. It was hard because Shatner's part goes from like the extreme side of his head over his 
the other side, which, so doing the divide down the middle for Two-Face was a little tough because you wanted him to look exactly like Shatner, but you couldn't do it with, with, with that, with the two colors of hair. But I originally thought in the sixties, it might've been more theatrical makeup, uh, you know, like grease paint makeup rather than like a prosthetic face. So that was my initial design for that was to take the Shatner filmation style look and then do it more with like the, the appearance of like the, the 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 lip and the big eye and the whole thing where it wouldn't have been quite as literal as what we ended up doing because they wanted it to look like Two-Face a little bit. And by the way, uh, they were also not just able to get Shatner to do this recording within the last 10 years, but it would be the last project of Adam West's career. Oh, uh, wow. Him voicing Batman for the last time, let alone... I believe involved in any recording of any kind, any kind of performance. Yeah. So this is a wonderful way that uh, the legend went out. And uh, so, and just think, Dusty's the one you have to thank for that. Thank you, Dusty. Thank you. <laughs> so the question, Alex, is while preparing for this episode, Once Upon a Planet, like, what was your take on watching this episode after all this time? Well, um, I'm going to fall into that less forgiving perspective. I haven't watched uh, the episodes in a while since the DVD set came out in that wonderful packaging that uh, was the white box that was shaped with, uh, I forget what else, it, it kind of had the embedded uh, symbol within it and everything. Very cool. Um, I was shocked reading so much stuff about filmation in magazines I get, um, like Retro Fan and... Uh, uh, other tomorrow's publications where the documentation of how limited their animation was. I forgot just how that looked until I'm watching an episode as I did for this podcast here. And boy, wow, that's limited. That's crazy limited. Um, I could flag it now before we get to the point where you're commenting on everything, but you're going to notice that on the planet below You've got Sulu running around for the guys, and alternately, they would forget about the fact that they've got shots of him sitting next to Eric's on the bridge. Oh, yeah. Cut away to there because, hey, limited animation. And uh, yeah, it is pretty, it's pretty striking, but it's also pretty funny, these limitations, which I, I kept thinking in context, they're going to be very acceptable, but. Our modern sensibilities makes this, uh, you know, it's a little, it's a little challenging. Yeah, absolutely. I noticed that too. And I'm like, I, can, I know Steve Morris is going to have a field day with this. <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, Dusty, what about you? What was your take on Once Upon a Planet rewatching it for Enterprise Incidents? Uh, it's uh, based on a real favorite episode of mine. I think the original, the, the, the live action Shore Leap is such a fun episode, the dynamic uh, camera work uh, is really stands out to me in that episode. So it had a lot to live up to. I miss not having the 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 wind chime mm. sound. That was what was most missing to me to establish the uniqueness of the planet. They would have the wind blowing, but what was so unique in that entire live action episode was the wind the the, the wind chime sound, which to me immediately identifies it as an alien alien world in star trek and it's sad that they didn't put that in there and my other big takeaway which we'll talk about i'm sure when we get there is how did they have a communications officer with what's with such a uh profound speech impediment 
is Emrys. <laughs> I mean, the slow, the slow delivery of information on the bridge with with that purr at the end, like it just doesn't make any sense that that would be the person you'd want in that specific position on the bridge. I'm going to be very cruel and say that I do not think this was Majel Barrett's best character <laughs> performance. You are correct. Uh, I just rewatched, uh, you know, I've been doing a rewatch of Next Generation, and I just rewatched uh, Menage a Troy from the third season. And, you know, Machel Barrett, you know, did what she could as Chapel in the original series, but but she seems to really, like, she really had a great time being uh, uh, Waxana Troy in, in, in Next Generation. Well, moving on to Once <laughs> Upon a Planet. The, it was directed by Hal Sutherland, who, as we know, directed all the episodes of the first season of the animated series. The production number for Once Upon a Planet is 22017. That makes it the 17th episode of the animated series to be produced. It aired on November 3rd, 1973, which makes it the 88th overall Star Trek episode to air. As I mentioned, the episode was written by Chuck Menville and Len Jansen, who were Oscar nominees. I did not know this, but they wrote and directed a live action short from 1967 called Stop, Look and Listen. And it was nominated for an Oscar. So you have Oscar nominees who wrote this episode. They also wrote collectively for TV shows, uh, animated shows like Sabrina, the Teenage Witch from 1969. Tarzan, Lord of the Jungle from 1976, The Smurfs from 1981, and The Real Ghostbusters from 1986. Uh, those are all animated shows. And then Chuck Manville, without Lynn Jansen, went on to write the second season animated episode, The Practical Joker. And this all came about for these guys when they reached out like a few of the other animated series uh, writers, to Dorothy Fontana, the story editor and associate producer, and pitched her a sequel to Shore Leave. Fontana said, quote, they understood what could be done on the show. Ultimately, there are a lot of changes suggested to them that me and Gene Roddenberry asked for, but there were so many things that were easy to do in animation, and that allowed more freedom. Now, Steve... When we were doing our deep dive on Shoreleaf, first of all, you had a great theory on why Shoreleaf was so far out there. Want to want to bring that up again? I hadn't even been thinking about it. Yes, the reason that I think that the only way I could say that it made sense was that something about being on the planet made everyone there a little bit high because <laughs> there's just stuff they should be picking up on and noticing. You know, and maybe not walking off with your lost love from decades before. So I see. So yes, I think part of what that planet does is makes everyone a little high. I think that came through in the original episode for sure. I mean, that was um, that was not completely lost in subtext. Uh, yeah. You know what? I got to tell you, like, well, there are certain episodes of the original series that are so absolutely unique in the sense that you know. There's nothing. There's there's not another episode quite like it. Whether it's the pacing or or the story itself or the vibe of it all, and Shirley is absolutely one of those episodes. It was written by Theodore Sturgeon, who went on to write Alex that episode you referred to, where Kirk and Spock fought each other a mock time in season two. Well, Theodore Sturgeon, as it turns out, actually pitched 
a sequel episode to Shore Leave titled imaginatively Shore Leave 2. <laughs> um, but it was never developed. Now, some of Sturgeon's original ideas, Steve, for his original concept of Shore Leave actually made it into this animated episode in terms of seeing the mechanics hmm. that ran the planet. Because we didn't see that in the original show, but right. you saw it here. Uh, the final draft of Once Upon a Planet was submitted on September 24th, 1973. Would you like to know some of the things that were going on in the world when this episode aired? Yes. So as you said, it aired on November 3rd, 1973. Well, a few days earlier on October 30th, the Bosphorus Bridge was completed in Turkey, connecting Europe and Asia over the Bosphorus for only the second time. And this is why I brought up this news story. You want to know the previous time that the Europe and Asia was connected over to the Bosphorus? It was with a pontoon bridge created by Emperor Darius of Persia in 512 BC. That was the previous time we had crossed <laughs> the Bosphorus. Um, as as we mentioned before, we're in the middle of the Yom Kippur War, uh, and ne the Netherlands has now banned all driving on Sundays due to the oil shortage. The Judiciary Committee is meeting in the House to consider impeaching President Nixon. Uh, on no November 3rd, NASA launches Mariner tw 10 towards Mercury. And this story is just crazy. <laughs> So on the same day, on November 3rd, the day that this aired, a passenger on National Airlines was sucked out of the window at 39,000 feet over New Mexico after the number three engine on the DC-10 had exploded and fragments penetrated the fuselage. Here's what's crazy about this story. You know, they have the black box that does all the recording inside the cockpit. And here is what the recording has 30 seconds before that explosion. The... Co-pilot says, I wonder, I wonder if you pull the N1 tack, will that uh, auto throttle respond to the N1? And the captain replied, gee, I don't know. And the co-pilot said, well, you want to try it and see? <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> 34 seconds later, there's an explosion and this guy gets sucked out the window. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Isn't that nuts? That's nuts. Yeah. They have that on the black box? Yep. They have this recording. Jeez. <laughs> um, so, oh, would you so this is what you guys mean by a deep dive. Yeah. Yes. Well, just oh, wait, because we're really just getting started. Oh, <laughs> boy. Oh, man. So should we get into the episode? Let's do it. Let's dive into Once Upon a Planet. Alex, Dusty, are you ready? I'm ready. No. Let's you do know, it. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm so ready. we hear in the log that we're being going back to the shore leave planet for some R&R. McCoy, Uhura, Uhura, and Sulu being down, and immediately they're recognizing the place to the point where they mention the white rabbit. I'm late, I'm late. Oh, my fuzzy ears and whiskers, I'm late. There's Alice. I beg your pardon, but did you see a white rabbit? It's all seeming very familiar. So a couple things to point out. So Dusty and Alex, the star date for this episode was 5591.2. So that means... The adventure of Once Upon a Planet actually took place between the original series episodes for The World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky, where McCoy falls in love, and Is There in Truth No Beauty with the uh, with Ambassador uh, who saves the Enterprise. And, you know, you look at him, you go mad. The Gorgon. Yes. Call us. And then McCoy is off looking at some house, and then there is the Queen of Hearts yelling off with his head. 
and they attack him and McCoy calls the Enterprise to beam up. And they're able to beam up McCoy. They're able to beam up Sulu. Uhura to transporter room. What is the emergency? Respond, please. When a robot grabs her communicator. So so a couple things here. So Uhura was the only member of the original series cast who was not, who did not beam down to the planet in the original Shore Leave episode. So so they they rectified that problem. So she's down there with them and she doesn't make it back to the Enterprise. But But my question is, you know, for someone who loves the original Shore Leave episode so much. Dusty, what was it like for you watching the beginning of Once Upon a Planet and seeing Alice and seeing the rabbit again? Uh, I was struck uh, with the notion that they got uh, Alice looking very much like the Disney Alice, which Mm. kind of uh, surprised me with the blue and white uh, outfit. It was very, very close to being the Disney one. a little bit less so than what I was struck by. I was also just noticing uh, it was a real subtle character thing, but the house that uh, Steve mentioned uh, that McCoy sees seems to have the appearance of like a Southern plantation, which seemed to fit in with McCoy's backstory, even though nothing of that was ever mentioned in the the episode itself. I, I I thought it was somebody that was actually, uh, you know, uh, channeling, the, the McCoy established uh, Southern gentleman uh, characterization that had been touched upon a, a few times in the original series. Right. It, it was a, it was an odd little like shot that just had no relation to really anything other than maybe he was, you know, fantasizing about a life on a Southern plantation or something. But I, that kind of struck me a little bit. I, I had exactly the, th- the same thought, Dusty. And, I, and it's where I think, although I, I enjoyed this episode, it's where I think they have just a huge missed opportunity because we're going back to the planet whose job is to make things that you think real. And wouldn't have been interesting if we actually did that again and saw, like you had mentioned, Scott, when we did shore leave, like I wish we had heard, seen what Spock's fantasy was. Well, wouldn't have that been a much more interesting episode to like indulge in what this planet actually does rather than break what the planet does and and in order to create more threats, you know? <laughs> well, actually, you know, it's funny with what Dusty just mentioned about seeing uh, Allison, the, the rabbit, is that, oh, geez, you know, I do remember seeing this as a child. Boy, that's a buried memory that's hit me back now. Like, you know, I... I until he pointed that out, it's like, yeah, I was there to watch this when it aired on CBS. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, CBS, 1973. Yeah. That's right. I don't think I was seeing it when it's first airing, but they would run this for the next how many years was this in reruns? Many times. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I'm betting I probably caught it closer to the ages of six or seven but uh i remember whenever it disappeared boy did i miss this show because it you know there's a certain amount of product that was supporting this at the time from Mego and other places that were making the action figures and i had a phaser as a kid so i i really really appreciated the fact that this was on saturday mornings for at least a moment of childhood before you know my greater uh, awareness and recall of childhood post the age of five on up would uh, be able to you know chronicle things better this this falls into the weird hazy area of like how old was i when i saw this but boy what a formative memory yeah, you know? yeah so it actually that's just the weirdness of this particular show it actually was nbc it was nbc for 
here in Los Angeles. By, by the way, trying to explain to my son, who is now 11, that there was this thing called a show being on, and you had to catch the show when it was on. He has no <laughs> understanding of is that, and that shows would just disappear. And that, and then, and then years later, you know, the animated series would show up in the afternoon on some channel for a little while, and you got to watch it. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's so strange. Anyway, we're back on the bridge, and the one important piece of information that comes out is that McCoy was not thinking about the Queen of Hearts. That in fact, the regular p- pattern of the planet where you think about something and it appears. That's not what's happening now. Well, one thing, one thing I just want to say. Uh, so, Alex, you were talking about about canon for the animated series and about how you know why why Gene kind of dismissed it and how the fans kind of brought it back. Well, one way in which this episode in particular was brought to canon was there is a part where Spock tells McCoy, "The Queen of Hearts and her cards are characters from Alice Through the Looking Glass, Captain." I read the book as a child, Mr. Spock, but I wasn't aware you indulged in the literature of fantasy. Light reading is considered relaxing, Captain. My mother was particularly fond of Lewis Carroll's work. Well, in, in Star Trek Discovery, the episode Context is for Kings, Michael Burnham, played by Sinequa Martin-Green, reveals that her mother, Amanda Grayson, had read Alice's Adventures in Wonderland to her and Spock as children. So... Spock is saying, oh, yeah, my mother read this to us. And in the Star Trek Discovery episode, Michael Burnham's character is saying, yeah, our, my mother read this to me and Spock. So that was a way in which uh, the animated episode was actually brought into canon. That's very cool. Again, these are things that aren't in the show, but I just wish that they could be because the more I think about it, the more I go – you know, we've thought a lot about the Amanda Sarek relationship and that she, when we mostly see, she just kind of lets him run the show in his Vulcan way. And I just suddenly went, you know what a crazy act of rebellion is? A quiet act of rebellion? Reading trippy Lewis Carroll to your Vulcan kid on Vulcan. That is like, it is the farthest thing from logic. <laughs> <laughs> And it also makes me go, man, wouldn't it be cool if Spock entered the world of Alice in Wonderland on this planet? Like, that's a great episode, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's another missed opportunity, Steve. I agree with you. And the other thing that comes up is there is no Lieutenant Uhura, and they can't find her, and they're going to beam down. And the one more thing we mention is we ask what happened to the Keeper. Right, yes, the Keeper. So the Keeper in the original series, who I always thought looked like uh, Darren's boss from Bewitched, uh, turns out that, I, you know, and this is actually a really interesting idea. You know, if you have someone sort of overseeing this kind of technology and that person is not there anymore, the technology lives on. I just like that's a that's a pretty common uh, trope in science fiction that that the uh, artificial intelligence outlasts its creator. So, but again, it's not really explored that much. Down on the planet, we are with Uhura, who is talking to the computer. You are being detained, so your master will not leave. My master? The sky machine. So this is another computer. We've seen this before in Star Trek with, with Nomad and other, where they think that the life form is in fact the Enterprise. And by the way, one thing, because we spent so much time with Uhura that I had never noticed before, but just really stood out at me, is that her eyes are the same color, the the whites of her eyes are the same color of her skin. And then I looked at all the other characters and it's like, oh, they're, their eyes are just a continuation of the same skin color. Yeah. And yeah. as soon as I noticed it, I was like, oh, that looks really weird, particularly on Uhura. 
<laughs> it's one of the reasons, though, the likenesses are so good because they don't have to do that lower uh, eyebrow, uh, uh, eyebrow or not eyebrow, eyelid, eye, eye, eyelid uh, in order to capture the white of the eye. So it allows. I th- I personally feel it allows a lot of leeway for being able to pull off caricatures when you don't have to be limited by necessarily an animation having to do a containment line for something like that. When I did Mike Tyson mysteries, we did, we full up did filmation style. We, we never did whites of the eyes and all that stuff. We, we would always try to incorporate the, the filmation approach of the skin color, just being, you know, just fill in the whole face. And I believe that that style standard was set in 66 when they started with the Adventures of Superman cartoon mm-hmm. show. And so everything thereafter was done in that same approach where it was the same color from skin all the way up through the eyeballs. Wow, this that's is why it's, Yeah, this is why it's fantastic to have artists on the show. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking to this computer and Uhura says, look, the other people are going to come looking for me. They are already here. Unfortunately, I have no use for more hostages, which leaves me no choice but to turn them off. That's murder. And he says, this is a word meaning cease to function? Yes. And he says, good. So that is our <laughs> threat. Uh, they beam down to the planet. Again, we get these, you know, long stills of silhouettes in a frame. You know, a lot of this sort of pretty cheap animation, um, which I do think looks cool. Like design-wise, it's cool. But animation-wise, it seems la- lacking in a lot. And no wind chimes. And no wind chimes. That's a great point. You, you know what, Dusty? Uh, you were brought. You were talking about the storyboards before, and the storyboards, the backgrounds, the paintings, the map. Well, the map paintings, I guess, uh, are really quite striking. And the artist who did those, his name is Bob Klein. Uh, you know, while the actual hand drawn animation may be a little, a little archaic, the the backgrounds are breathtaking and. A lot of those storyboards were used for the uh, literary adaptations of the animated series on the Star Trek log book series that were uh, those books were that were written by Alan Dean Foster in the 70s. Yep. Yeah, there's uh, websites devoted to just the the backgrounds. I mean, uh, you you can find uh, there's beautiful backgrounds done by artists at Filmation and Hanna-Barbera that deserve art books unto themselves because they're so beautiful. And there's there's great. Instagram uh, pages with like the Scooby-Doo backgrounds, which like you might not necessarily but think of as being like high art or anything, but they're 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 marvelous. And I there is a website that has a lot of the Star Trek ones, and it was real fun to go and check all those out. I, I, oh, wow. I again just a huge fan of the of the production of the animated series. So uh, we're speculating that Ahura is probably underground, which is where the keeper is, but the 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 surface of the planet, we can't read through it. We're talking about beaming down something called a phaser bore, a thing that I yeah. believe has never come up since. Um, and now we're starting to have communication problems. We're starting to have power problems on the Enterprise. And then we spot something in the trees, and there is an obelisk, and this is the last resting place of the Keeper. So no more Keeper. And that is the end of Act 1. So so I gotta say, uh, I, I really like the setup for this episode, that that okay, they're back to the planet, and they, you know, they learned their lesson when they were there the first time, just to be careful what you think of, which I still think is is pretty dangerous because you know sometimes you can't stop your mind from racing off into something, and then before you know it, there's a tiger right in front of you. So who knows? Um, so I think it was kind of a risk for them to go back to that planet, but you know they they went back, and now the uh, 
the the artificial intelligence let behind by the keeper has become sentient. And I, you know, I think that this is definitely a, a Star Trek, uh, I would say, trope that is used uh, many times in the original series, where where machines like are running the show. Look at uh, Landru in Return of the Archons, and look at the uh, Ruck, and then Doctor Corby in, um, you know, what are little girls made of? And then, of course, the the robot androids in I Mud that want to take over and take care of humanity uh, and protect humanity from itself. So this feels like Star Trek to me. And uh, I think for the most part, uh, uh, you know, this, this is another reason why I think the animated episodes should be given more respect and credit that they're due. Well, you know, one of the things this also seems to link up to thematically is the desire and need for a fabricated reality for a break from their traveling through the universe. So going back to this place that would create kind of reality on demand is linked akin to, of course, the holodeck that would show up on Next Generation that would inform much of their stories for, you know, the decades thereafter that, you know, there's this need for kind of controlling an excursion and wanting to make a manufactured uh, playland you could uh, vacation at. You know, I seem to remember an episode of the Super Friends back in the 70s where the Super Friends were fighting a sort of artificial intelligence that wanted to basically take care of humanity. Hmm. I have this vague memory of that, you know, that's something that Star Trek had explored, you know, a couple of times now. Well, I think someone listening probably can track down exactly what that vague memory comes from, Scott. Um, <laughs> so uh, we come back in Act 2, and Uhura, there, there's more problems on the Enterprise, and Uhura is arguing with this computer. And it was interesting to me because it's like, man, arguing with computers, that's usually a Jim Kirk job. Um, and what I find, what's one of the things I think, and we, again, no proof of this at all, but it feels to me, as if the William Shatner who argued to take other people's lines on the original Star Trek show to make sure that he always had the most lines, that guy is absent in the animated series. Because there's, <laughs> yeah. there's way more stuff spread around to other people. I mean, Uhura has so much stuff to do in this episode, which is great. The yeah. only bummer to me is that it's not, it's wasted. Is that she, I wish that she was the one since she's had this whole conversation with the computer who actually kind of wins the argument, you know, right. but, but, but she really doesn't. But the big thing we hear in this conversation is that this computer is upset that it's basically been in service its whole existence and he wants a change. Yeah. That, that's a, yeah, that's, that's a pretty self-aware thing to do. You know, you're not just doing what you're programmed to do that. You're like, I'm tired of servicing everybody else. I got to service myself. Uh, it's he, the computer actually says it's time for a change. <laughs> I mean, okay. <laughs> well, but it's not a thing that they deliver on because in the end they go, sorry, you don't get a change. Keep doing the yeah, thing, thing felt, you've been doing. I, I felt exactly the same way. It's like, there's this profound like recognition of this new life form and, you know, we'll will help you into the Federation. I mean, that seems like where it should have went rather yeah. than, okay, beep. Well, I mean, I'm jumping to the end. But uh, it, it seemed to me it just kind of reset the set computer exactly where it was at the start of the show, which is delivering 
pleasure for others, others instead yeah. of fulfilling your newfound needs and desires. It it seemed like it didn't really deliver on the promise of what Kirk was attempting to convey to it. Oh, fair enough. Although, you know, there is a constancy of a certain kind of entertainment that we had in the 20th century when, say, you go back to Wizard of Oz, where the conclusion at the end of the movie is Glinda the Good Witch is telling Dorothy that you had everything you needed back where you came from. Mm. You didn't need this wonderful, fantastic place you've gone to. You need to go back to just your basic world and your life that you were escaping from where they were going to kill your dog. So that's kind of somewhat the theme here of like, just stay doing what it is. Just realize you've got everything you need here. Be happy and shut up and just get back to business. So, so there's a strange way in this episode is an establishment episode trying to, to maintain the status quo by keeping the people in service in service. To, right. To the elites. That's, right. Okay. That's I don't it. know. It's somewhat of a theme that, that pops up in our entertainment more than you might think. Well, I mean, a classic theme in Star Trek is to reject Edens. I mean, is that there shouldn't be, there shouldn't be some happy place where we all, all can just party and have a good time. We have to work and crawl and fight. And that's what, that's what original Star Trek tells us should be life. There are a lot of entrances into the interior of the planet, points where the computer delivers up the robot visions. We want to see them. Where are they? And basically, this is the most deus machina thing. There are multiple ones in this, which is that there actually is a god in the machine on this planet, and they know there's a god in the machine on this planet, and so they go, well, why don't we just think of the thing we need, which is this directions to get to the underground, and they pop up. That's... That's pretty useful because <laughs> there's a sign that says to the underground entrance and they follow the sign. And then we hear some pterodactyls and it sounds like exactly the same sound effects we saw heard a couple of episodes ago. Oh, um, come on. That's okay. <laughs> Steve. <laughs> see, I, see, the fact that you have the music is, you know, they reuse a lot of the same music and the, you know, the, the animation, they got the same shot of Kirk running towards the camera I don't care about any of that. I'll tell you why, gentlemen, because these are the characters that I love. And both you, Alex and Dusty said this. And you know, Steve and I have said this like so many times, like you can make a drinking game out of that. But to me, Star Trek is these characters. Star Trek, to me, for many, many, many years was the relationship between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, the chemistry between those guys. And whether it's live action in the original show or animated, like in the animated series, I felt like it's still that that triumvirate. And yes, Steve, you're completely right that with this episode, the action is spread to the to the other characters as well, including Arix, who takes over the con on the Enterprise, and Mares, who takes over her Uhura, probably shouldn't have, but she did. Um, <laughs> But that, to me, is what I always loved about Star Trek. And then, you know, you get to Next Gen and DS9 and so on. You find new things to love, new characters to love. But damn, I don't care if it's animated or live action. Kirk is still the man. I love Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And and I don't care if it's the same shot of these guys running, walking towards the camera. I don't care. I love well, it. Well, and actually, and to actually add to your point... I have such a deep love and affection for the music created for and recycled through through all those various filmation shows 
And I think much of it was composed for the Shazam live action show. Oh, I didn't know that. Taken. I, 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 it's something somebody could check, but basically they paid for it once. They're going to make the most out of it for the next uh, yeah, eight years yeah. or whatever <laughs> it wound up being. So that was reused in many of their various cartoon products over and over again, if not everything. Space and, Academy. I mean, all that, you know, the, 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 the threatening music. I mean, that showed up. Every, the dun, dun, dun. I mean, that was like, that, that showed up everywhere. And I love it. I, I, I love know. it too. Like, it's a trigger for me. Like I hear it and I'm, I'm transported. And I, I felt that passion back then. I loved it then. I love it now. I'm with you guys. I just, I want to point out real quick, cause I, I, I gave, uh, uh, Scott a heads up. There is an album on Spotify where a, an orchestra has, it's a Star Trek compilation. I wish I had the name of it right offhand. There's some next gen cues in it, but there's about 10, Re, not reimagined, but uh, updated uh, contemporary re-recordings of the animated series music, and it's awesome. They're like they they don't have the uh, they they didn't necessitate having to like up and down the volume to get rid of dialogue, and they're just freshly new recorded, and they sound great. So I would recommend anybody that is maybe maybe is totally into the music or has maybe not familiar with it. It's it's great incidental music. It, I, I wish that they would adapt the theme to it for one of the new live action shows. I was hoping Strange New Worlds would have used it to tell you the yeah, truth because I, yeah. I think it's a brilliant theme. So they make it past the pterodactyls into the cave, and then someone Kirk says something about cat and mouse game, and now there is a giant cat outside the cave. And Scott, I anticipate that you have a question for me on this moment. And so instead, I will ask you the question. What episode does this remind you of? I was going to ask you, Steve Morris, and you're throwing it back to me. Of course, as soon as I saw the giant cat, I thought of the very first episode that was shot for season two of the original series, Cat's Paw. Guys, Alex, Dusty, what did you think of the Cat's Paw episode? Because Steve Morris does not like it. (laughs) True story. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's the classic halloween episode you gotta yep. love that one thank I mean, you <laughs> skeletons chained to the wall the little cucumber aliens at the end with the strings visible fantastic dusty you are speaking my language brother so thank you <laughs> <laughs> my pleasure so back on the enterprise there's some shakes and eric's goat takes us into manual override and then while the music is intense and exciting we have the slowest shot of the Enterprise coming into orbit. It goes on forever. It totally doesn't match the tone of what's happening. It's just like, why Why am I looking at this for so long? You know what? There, there are a couple moments, I have to say, during this episode, Once Upon a Planet, you know, where time is so precious to get so much into a 22-minute story, basically, without the credits, where it just took a little long to get there. Like when they first beamed down to the Shirley Planet, you know, Spock or rather Sulu and Uhura, you know, are 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 kind of getting the lay of the land. And there's a really nice moment when you hear Uhura sing and you're hearing the show mm-hmm. Nichols sing for the first time since, you know, probably I would say the changeling, um, you know, when she was humming so, uh, yeah. beyond Antares. So I thought that was a really nice moment. But Steve, you're right to point out that that the pacing of this moment was a little it did drag a little it was it was a. It felt a little padded, and I felt like overall one of the issues I have with Once Upon a Planet pacing-wise is that 
it does feel a little choppy. That's one of the reasons I, I don't love the episode. I have a suspicion that planet is getting the feel of how to control the Enterprise. And there is a big music sting, and we've reached the end of Act 2. Um, we're back in Act 3, and we're still trying to figure out how to get to Uhura. What they go back to is that McCoy had been mortally wounded on the previous trip by the knight in shining armor or by the black knight. And he had gone down to be repaired and maybe they just need to make someone really, really sick, which is again, an old classic star Trek move. Yes. And it's a classic uh, star Trek move that we saw Spock himself do in by any other name when he uh, sort of faked that vacation uh, to get, uh, to get up to the enterprise uh, and uh, take it back from the Kelvins, which didn't happen right away. But I think that, the, the fact that, you know, they are referencing now as the specific moment in shore leave when they when we all watching that episode thought that McCoy was was killed. Of course, he wasn't. But that they're there. Spock is using that moment to kind of like be like, hey, you maybe you saw something there that could help us out of the situation that this really does sort of, uh, you know, lean into the original episode in a way to further the sequel. I think it act, this part actually works, works pretty well. Well, this scene is the most Kirk, Spock and McCoy scene in the episode. And that's what, you know, you, we've all said from the beginning, this is the core of Star Trek is these three guys. And we even have a kind of Star trek moment where Kirk's like, all right, give me the shot. I submit captain that I am the more qualified subject. How's that? My knowledge of computers for one thing. And his tough vault and hide for another. Thank you, doctor. Captain, both your arguments seem sound. Go ahead, Bones. So, like, that's a classic sort of little discussion between the big three. Yep, exactly. So we give Spock the shot. He walks outside and immediately goes down. And now in the Enterprise, we've lost gravity. So they're all floating around trying to fix that. You know, what's interesting is when I was saying at the top of the conversation uh, that Gene Roddenberry and Dorothy Fontana had given these writers notes to say, you know what? This is animation. You could do things that you couldn't do in live action. I'll bet this was one of those moments because this is the first time that we're seeing the artificial gravity on the Enterprise give out in this way, where they have to, you know, you see, you see helm and navigation strapped into their chairs because they they have to man their controls and they can't pull it away. I thought that was a really cool, cool concept that they could not do in the original series. It's been almost five minutes, Captain. Maybe the planet smells a trick. Wait just a bit longer. But the effect will start wearing off in a minute, Jim. And finally, the mechanical nursemaid comes, grabs Spock, a door opens in the, in the stone wall, and Kirk manages to, of course, dive through at the last possible second, leaving McCoy and Sulu outside, who get chased by like a fire-breathing Hydra-type creature. Right, a two-headed dragon. And Sulu yeah. even says... Uh, Not in my wildest dreams would I think of that. <laughs> Inside, the computer has recognized that both Spock and Kirk are there. And I would say that we are building up some multiple things going at once in a very Star Trek fashion of things going wrong in the Enterprise that we're trying to fix. We're running from the dragon. Uhura is in with the computer. Kirk and Spock are there. They're all sort of building together, which is, I think, done pretty well. This is the part of the episode that I think I enjoyed the most. Why have we been repeatedly attacked and are now being held prisoner by a planet known for its hospitality? You mean mindless servitude? And this, just going back to Dusty, what you are saying before, this is where this episode really fails. 
because they established this idea of this artificial intelligence that has achieved sentience on some level and is saying that it's a slave. That's what it's saying. It is no longer enough to serve. I must continue to grow and live. And they talk about their partnership with the enterprise computer. Men and machines coexist, each helping the other. And I'm going, do they? I mean, is it a partnership? Like, I don't think that this is true. I think they run the computer and are in charge of it. Well, okay, this is this is a really, really great point. And uh, I think that if if this had been thought through in a better way, this really would have made this a really effective episode and maybe even a great live action episode, if, you know, because we we look at some of these animated episodes and go, that would have been a great live action episode of the original series. But first of all, you have this computer that is saying, it's time for change. I'm tired of serving everything. I want to do my own thing. And the computer on the planet is looking at the enterprise and looking at other computers saying that all computers are superior and immediately assuming that the enterprise is like this computer on the planet when it's not. And I agree with you, like some of this dialogue, Steve, I didn't exactly agree with because they're they're not working together. Ultimately, everything about the enterprise is under the control of the people aboard it. Yeah, they could tell the computer to blow itself up. And they almost did a couple times. Well, it's like in one of the big differences between Star Wars and Star Trek is Star Trek, you want to engage in the philosophical idea that it introduces. In Star Wars, droids are clearly slaves. They clearly have emotions. They clearly have desires. And Star Wars just goes, yeah, we're not really going to deal with that that much. I never thought about that. But you're it's actually surprising the run of various Star Wars shows and movies now has only begun to start to address that disparity. And in fact, the very successful show Andor from last year is is the first ever that actually established the idea of what if you noticed one of these human beings dealing with a droid actually treated the droid with respect? And it was striking that the idea of recognizing the individuality if not the humanity of the droid yeah was something you weren't used to seeing in this landscape that generally all the droids from all the leads including luke han and leia and everybody have been treated terribly awful have been treated as just receptacles for their direction i mean c-3po complains about all this stuff and they turn him off yeah you know yeah i never thought about that And there's even an aspect of the Mandalorian show that has put some respect towards this idea, too. And uh, it's it's interesting to see if that begins to develop over time now, because it's a door that's been finally open for that realization that the Star Wars universe has been largely indifferent to intelligent life uh, when it's arriving in the form of being artificial. Wow. Mind blown, Alex. Thank you for that. <laughs> but, and, this is the, and this is why I think in Star Trek, where like the goal, or my opinion, is if you introduce an intellectual or philosophical ideal, idea, that we should deal with it on some level. And, right. and here we do. This is clearly an artificial intelligence that has achieved sentience, believes that it is a slave, and then they kind of lie to it about their relationship with other machines. And then they say, you just stay here and keep it. And it's funny because I just recently watched, Scott, I'm sure you've seen it. I don't know if you two have, but I watched Triangle of Sadness, which is 
a disturbing and upsetting film. And it's all about the elites and their abuse of the people that work for them in their amazing vacation universe and the dehumanization of the people, you know, that are serving them. And then I watched this episode where this, the guy that runs the greatest amusement park ever is going, I'm sick of this. And they say, yeah, keep doing it. You'll, you'll be happier. Trust us. Oh, wow. Uh, by the way, yes, Triangle of Sadness is uh, its an amazing movie and extremely provocative, very disturbing. And I, I got to say, the fact that this movie came out at the same time as those two seasons of that show, uh, The White Lotus. Right. It's all, you know, everyone's trying, everyone's like onto something here with, you know, white, uh, you know, uh, privilege. Uh, yeah, that, yeah. You know, yeah, it's, it's exactly really- why I've avoided these things because I've I've been to resorts at least a couple of times and I've felt all that disparity and it's unnerving. Yeah, absolutely. And it's nothing I want to seek out in my entertainment. <laughs> I, I got to so, say not to not to you know go off the track here, but I was in Spain last uh, October for a film festival and uh, I had a film that was actually in the festival about uh, 1982. Uh, documentary about 1982 anyway i was invited out to this dinner where it was like that dinner in triangle of sadness where everything was disgusting looking but extremely expensive and all i did was eat a couple of bread rolls and had a sprite because i just i was so disturbed by that movie and by the white lotus where i was like i am not taking part in this (laughs) yeah yeah and, and yet, as they're trying to convince this machine, it is Uhura who says, There is no shame in serving others when one does it of his own free will. You have a marvelous capability to provide happiness for others. A rare talent you you should cherish and use. Now, I don't th- have anything wrong, think there's anything wrong with this statement. It's just the, I'm trying to convince you to continue your you know, eternal servitude to other people, you know. And it is weird when it's coming from the black cast member. Yeah, so, I had the same thought, yeah. Yeah, it, it it's like yeah. you don't dispute what she's saying, the way she phrased it, but then there's all this other hanging baggage that we're thinking of. Yep. Really good point. Yep, absolutely. With the wonders you have to offer, the galaxy will come to you. I can find no fault with your logic, and your suggestion is most congenial. One thing I do think is interesting, it's normally when they battle with a comp- artificial intelligence, it ends with smoke coming out of the artificial intelligence's ears because they mental jujitsu did into destroying itself. <laughs> and that's not the move they use here. That's a good point. Yeah, they actually spared Trekkers yep. the trope of having the computer destroy itself because Kirk talked them into it. <laughs> yep. I invite you and your crew to be my guests on one condition. Name it. We must have more of these discussions while you're here. Mr. Spock, would you care to take on that duty? I would find it most interesting, Captain. Who apparently doesn't get any vacation because I guess he doesn't need it. And then the last thing we find out is that shore leave has already commenced and we cut to Sulu and McCoy having a picnic with Alice, the rabbit, and the big dragon. And the two-headed dragon. And that brings us to the end of What's Upon a Planet. So, first question, Dusty. After now you have experienced what it is like to be part of the deep dive breakdown here on Enterprise Incidents. I, I, I want to be a part of uh, everyone going forward. This was so much fun. I, wow. I, I had an absolute blast. 
The, the one way I would have loved to have seen that sh- episode wrap up is to have them uh, have have said, like, we're going to send an envoy team from the Federation to, you know, to start uh, communicating with you and, and, and helping you to develop what you, you know, are trying to become. I think that would I mean, that's what they would have done today. It, you know, it was not on their radar back then. I think uh, a lot of Steve's suggestions about where he might have taken the story are, would have been fan. I think you definitely would have got Dorothy Fontana's uh, interest in exploring some of those ideas. I just wish they would have presented more of the, you know, we've discovered a new a new race, so to speak. And when they do that, they typically, you know, they, they would then bring in a team uh, from, from it, it, they wouldn't just automatically, you know, okay, yeah, doors are open to the amusement park. Let's keep it going. They, I think they could have, paused it for a while and, and just set up some kind of uh, establishment uh, for, for what it was trying to express. I think it's cool that they diffuse the problem of it's trying to hijack the ship. So I, I give them that. They, 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 they kind of were able to stop that from continuing. But that, that's the only thing I would have maybe loved to have seen that would have elevated it for me at the end is to, to have them better acknowledge the, the, the planet's computer uh, uh, trying to see itself as something more than just, you know, uh, working for everybody else's benefit. All right, Alex, how about you? In all of your career, to be part of a scene-by-scene breakdown of an animated episode of Star Trek, how do you feel about this episode? It's a highlight, probably. <laughs> I'm scandalized by the entire experience. So, uh, <laughs> I, I hey, it was a lot more lively than I would have expected. And we had a lot to uh, pull out of this. So, uh, very interesting. <laughs> well, I, I really feel like it's not my favorite of the animated episodes that we've covered so far on Enterprise Incidents. There's a lot that I like about it. Uh, you know, I felt like the, the pacing was a little off uh, because it's coming from two writers who've never written for Star Trek of any kind before, even though, of course, you have Fontan and Roddenberry still calling the shots ultimately. But what I really liked, and I'm realizing this now at the end of the episode, is that it didn't it did not end, Steve, like you said, with uh, the computer being talked into destroying itself, uh, that there is empathy and there's communication and there is a uh, an antagonist who uh, believes what it's doing is the right thing to do, uh, but then it it's it's through the communication starting with Uhura and then you know ultimately with uh, the 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 rest of the gang realizes that there is a better way to go about this and the computer uh, that that moment of empathy at the end like we must have more of these discussions while you're here like you've really felt compassion. It's funny, we, we've as we've done these deep dives, there have been some deep dives that have made me love the episode even more as we got to the end. And then there have been a few other deep dives where I liked the episode even less. I said I said at the beginning <laughs> that I had that I enjoyed this episode, that it was fine, that I put it kind of in the, you know, in the middle of these episodes. And the more we've talked, the more it's the these two elements. One is the missed opportunities of fantasy and and this planet reading your mind and what's in our characters heads not in this episode at all that seems like a missed opportunity and the ending really bugs me more the more i think about it the more what they do to this computer is really crappy and so i really yeah I've, i now like it less the more i've thought about it well with that uh we have to absolutely thank 
our very, very special guest, Dusty Abel. Uh, you've heard us talking about this poster that Dusty created for the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. And it is a must-have for absolutely every single person who loves Star Trek. He also did one with the Next Generation crew. He did one for Spider-Man, which I have. But you can check out all Two of for Dusty's. Spider-Man. Two for He's Spider-Man. In- See, yeah. there's a fan. Um, you can go. Which have also been released as puzzles. Yes, oh, that's cool. Right. But the, that's, that, that's, that's the reason people will know if they don't know the poster from 2016 on the 50th anniversary, they will know it from when the lockdown happened, because I think that's when everybody was ordering puzzles. And that it, it's such a huge one that it was, I, I think it, 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 it was a happy time for Star Trek fans that were stuck at home for an inordinate amount of time. So that's, that's probably where I'm, where they know me from the best is everybody that was, was sheltered uh, in place for months on end. Well, you can check out and order that puzzle and that poster at DustyAble.com. That's Dusty, A-B-E-L-L, two L's, dot com. And trust me, when you see this poster, if you haven't already seen it, you're going to want it. So go to DustyAble.com and check it out. And you can check out all of Alex Ross's art at AlexRossArt.com. And let me tell you, If you're a fan of Alex Ross, and I know you are, this website is the mother load. I was scrolling down, going to page two, going to page three, going to page 14, going like, I'm going to go broke. Uh, This is (laughs) absolutely my jam. So first of all, Dusty, thank you so much for reaching out about joining us here on Enterprise Incidents. Where else can people find you, social media, your website? Tell us. Uh, it's been an absolute blast, you guys. I, I Mark was uh, did not steer me wrong when he turned me on to your podcast, and I'm I, I'm sorry that I came to it uh, late after you had already finished the original series. But I'm so happy that I get to go back and now listen on demand to any one of the 80 episodes that you've already done, uh, and I don't have to wait week after week to get to them. So I'm 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 kind of really fortunate in that respect. Um, I'm on Instagram, uh, just my name, Dusty Abel. Uh, I just, can I mention a couple of things that Star Trek fans might find of interest that might not necessarily be on their radar? Uh, we, we we touched on it just a little bit earlier, the Franz Joseph blueprints of the Enterprise, which uh, were a huge part of my childhood. I absolutely loved them. There's a fellow online, his name is Jim Botatis, and he uh, is an engineer, and he went back and reconciled all of the sets the way they appeared in the episodes with the actual filming model of the Enterprise, uh, as it, the, the one that's in the Smithsonian, and he redid the blueprints. Mm. They're amazing. So and he calls out every uh, uh, set that was uh, uh, seen in individual episodes. Uh, it, they're all updated. They're amazing. So I want to give a shout out to Jim Botatis at jbot.ca. So it's jbot.ca amazing you'll love them uh and then there also my one other uh pick to click is there's a fella in denmark that just started a youtube channel and he goes by mr trek and this guy is over the next five years his ambition is to build a 125th scale enterprise in its entirety with every deck every room every access panel he's building like 2,000 chairs 
to put in every cabin and stateroom. It's going to have the pool, the bowling alley, the hangar, the food oh, processing, the cafeteria. <laughs> it's bananas. Right now, he's just in the prelim. What and it's all practical. It's not three D. It's he's building it out of craft paper and pla- I mean, it's it's bananas. Right now, he's in the concept stage where he's working out uh, what how it uh, will work, and he's got a huge space devoted to it because the thing's going to be like. The saucer, I think, is 40 feet across. I mean, it's crazy. Wow. Uh, but anyway, it, it, you got to go check. And he's so incredibly upbeat and enthusiastic about it. You'll, 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 you'll totally be won over by him just in, in his pure enthusiasm for this, this project. So Mr. Trek on YouTube. You'll, you'll Mr. Trek. You'll well, get actually, you know, that's similar to another project that exists in the 3D virtual world. Yep. done by the Roddenberry Archive. You're familiar with that, right? Yep, yep. So you there's can actually go... There's just something crazy, though, about actually he'll run his camera through the actual hallways and decks that he's already prepared. It's such a different feeling than... I, the, the 3D will feel, of course, like you're in the actual, and you can look up and everything else, but there's just something crazy cool about a practical... The idea that this is a real thing that you know, the sections will like come out and I mean, he's got a whole, I don't know how he's going to do it. I wish him all the luck in the world, but yes, the Roddenberry project is also amazing. Okay. So Alex, three things. First of all, thank you so much for joining us on Enterprise Incidents. Second thing is where can people follow you and find you on social media or your website? And third, third, what are you working on? What can we look forward to next from you? Apparently, I'm on social media, even though I don't use a computer, but I have people to uh, set that up for me. So my agent runs my website, sells my artwork, sets up at the conventions, and we have social media. What those things are, I couldn't tell you. Uh, I believe the Insta things of the world and Facebooking and whatever, I I, I believe I'm there, but it's not me. It's people (laughs) representing me. So if you want to go look at my work or get lots of images dumped into your inbox with my work, that can happen. Um, as far as for uh, my work coming forward, I am currently the cover artist of uh, the Fantastic Four, Doctor Strange, and upcoming soon, which I assume they'll be announcing soon, and maybe I'm releasing that information right here, uh, Thor. Oh, cool. Ooh. Fantastic. Well, uh, again, gentlemen, uh, to have both of you on to talk about an animated episode of Star Trek coming from artists such as yourself, uh, this was was such a a, a joy of a conversation. And uh, Steve, um, what do you think? <laughs> but it's been a great conversation. So uh, if people want to reach us, they can do it on Facebook by searching for Enterprise Incidents. It's Enter Incidents on Twitter, Enterprise Incidents on Instagram. You could subscribe to the show at all the usual places. But if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts, we definitely could use a review. And if you want to support the show, you can do so. It's no longer called Anchor. It's called Spotify Podcast now. But it's the same link in the show notes where you can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month, as much as $9.99 a month. I I'm SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And I was thinking because this episode is a sequel of sorts, there's certain sequels that 
some people consider to be better than the original. And we've covered a bunch of them on my other podcast, The Cinephiles, things like The Empire Strikes Back, Aliens, Terminator 2, The Godfather Part 2, and of course, one of the greatest sequels ever made, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Scott, how would people find you? Well, I love that podcast episode of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan on the Cinephiles, because that was the first conversation I had with you yep. uh, on the Cinephiles. So if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be here. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance. Please make sure you share the links to Enterprise Incidents on your social media platforms so that more people can discover what we've been doing with Star Trek on Enterprise Incidents. So share it on your social media. Like Steve said, please support us on uh, through the Spotify link uh, uh, on our, you know, which uh, which he described, and also write a review for Enterprise Incidents on Apple Podcasts. We love reading your feedback. And please join us on the next episode of Enterprise Incidents, where we are going to unveil another sequel. Actually, that would make this episode a trilogy. <laughs> Next on Enterprise Incidents is Mud's Passion. That's right. Harcourt Fenton Mud is back for more mayhem on the next Enterprise of Enterprise Incidents. Until then, keep going boldly.